Hi everyone, I'm here with my good friend Rob Barber, who owns and runs Golden Africa Private Mobile Safaris in Botswana. He is in Botswana at the moment, and we're going to chat to him about living, working, growing up, loving everything in the bush. So, Rob, hi, how are you? Afternoon, Rose. Very nice to be chatting to you after so long. Uh, very well, thank you. All is good here in Botswana. When was the last time we saw each other? I think it was um, We Are Africa last year and you had rented this um, villa, which was kind of like if Jay-Z had a house in Cape Town. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I was with my dear friends um, out of Tanzania. Um, yeah, we had a wonderful villa um, and some, uh, some, some, some great times there. Yeah, it was. That was the very last time. Gosh, that's well over a year ago, Rose. Have I you been know. keeping up? Yeah, I'm all good. I'm all good. Um, mainly because I've just got back from Africa, which always makes you feel better. But... What a pleasure. <laughs> so actually, that brings us perfectly onto your um, onto the f kind of first thing I want to talk about, which is your childhood, because you grew up in Tanzania, I think. And obviously, that's why all your, you've got so many friends from Tanzania and they were all staying with you in Cape Town for the show. Um, but where, where exactly did you grow up and, and had your parents kind of been brought up in Tanzania too? Yeah, so it's a bit of a mix. So I was born in Tanzania in the Southern Highlands um, in Mofindi, which is actually a, a, a tea and gum tree um, estate. Um, and my family have been in Tanzania since the early 60s. Well, actually, since the 50s. My grandmother escaped the Mau Mau in 53 and moved south. Um, so I'm a seventh generation African born on my mother's side um, and my father's English. So I was, I left Tanzania at about five or six or so to do all my education in the UK, uh, primary, secondary and university. And I think three months after graduating from university, I was back in Africa. So I had a, a childhood uh, coming back and spending lots of time in the bush growing up. Um, so it, it got under my skin at a very young age. Um, I was very lucky, in fact, to have been given the opportunity to, um, to experience it uh, at a young age. And, you know, think of standout memories of um, going to Ruaha National Park, which is where I actually ended up cutting my teeth guiding back in the late 90s. And when I was a kid, we'd go out there as a family for sort of two weeks at a time. And I used to sit on top of the Land Rover and be the spotter. Um, but I, my earliest memory of doing that was coming around a bend and just seeing this, uh, this pair of lions mating. And I, I must have been about eight, eight years old or 10 years old or so. Um, and just the sense of enormity of seeing a lion at that age when you're... Um, exposed sitting on top of a vehicle um, is probably the most powerful memory I ever had as a kid. And I think anybody who has ever returned to their primary school as an adult and forgets or doesn't realize quite how small it is, that change of size perception as you, as you, as you grow older um, is very much what, what hit me about the size of these lions as a kid. Mm. And that it was, it was like this phenomenal adrenaline rush um, and it was so exhilarating as well. And I was yeah. it. I was hooked. I was just hooked from that moment forward. Um, so that's where it, that's where the love of the bush kicked off. Um, was, yeah. was at a young age and yeah, then I was addicted. 
And it sounds like your family were very keen on, on although they were obviously, you know, African, um, they actually, you know, that doesn't necessarily relate to being keen on the wildlife and keen on the bush, but it sounds like that as a, as a family, everyone was kind of a naturalist and, and very keen on, on being in the wilderness. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so my 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 grandmother was a was a dairy farmer, um, but when you've got somewhere like Raha National Park, a three hour drive away on your doorstep, um, it was uh, it was the leisure. It was the leisure and the pleasure activities of the you know the people of the era. So there were three families. There was our family. There was the Fox family who are still in the safari business um, yeah. in Tanzania. And then there was the Gowies. Um, uh, some people might know Mike Gowie, who's a very famous wildlife artist. Amazing um, artist, yeah. Yeah, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So those were the, sort of the three main families of the of the area that used to go down to Ruaha, and there really was no one else. Yeah. Um, and so it it became um, the, the 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 leisure activity of our family. So whenever we used to go out and visit, we'd spend time on the farm, obviously. Mm. But then we'd we'd my thing was getting out to the bush. I would always be as a kid running and annoying Granny, saying, "When are we going to the bush? When are we going to the bush?" <laughs> uh, and so we'd have this private campsite on the on the Great Ruaha River yeah. in Ruaha National Park. And um, the the standout memory of that place was yeah outside of the beautiful little natural whirlpool of the river which we used to bathe in and the beautiful shade of the tree that we used to set camp under my uncle used to use the lower jawbone of um, an an old bull elephant which if you turn it upside down and stick a stone under it it makes the perfect um, loo seat so we used to have this loo with a view. Using the upturned uh, that's, jawbone that's of an elephant. That's what I expected you to say. I didn't think the story was going that direction. Yeah, that's amazing. So for, for, for decades, this, um, this uh, elephant jawbone became our loo with a view in the bush. And it was one of the most sort of standout memories of that wonderful campsite we used to have um, overlooking the river. I'm so, not yeah, it was lovely. It was an absolutely lovely spot. Um, and so talk us through how you ended up, obviously with Tanzania being very much in your blood, how did you end yes. up now living very permanently in Botswana? Yeah, good question. So um, I guess because I always knew that I wanted to get into the safari world and I didn't really know how I was going to do it as a kid. I didn't know whether it would be through photography or videography or veterinary science um, mm -hmm. Uh, or, or via the safari industry. I didn't really know, but all I knew is that I wanted to work with or around um, wildlife. Um, and as I came towards the end of my degree at university in the last 18 months or so, having spent my childhood saying, I'm going to go and live my life in the bush in Africa, I realized I kind of had to do something about it once and for all. And so I, I started, um, I, I started uh, pursuing all possible options um and this wonderful thing called google had just been invented so i was googling um various uh, safari companies throughout africa um uh, to, to try and find um an opportunity get a foot in the door um uh, but the one thing i didn't want to do was was um was was pull favors from family i didn't want to um i wanted to to succeed on merit, not to do it on your own, yeah. Yeah, um, and so because Tanzania had been sort of 
where I was born, where my family was, what I knew, sort of a very pleasurable place for me in terms of my early memories and where my love of it came. Um, I wanted to also stretch my wings a bit and see more of the more of the continent. And I'd always remembered seeing a a book on uh, my my mother's bookshelf as a kid called um, Okavango um, by a chap called Peter Bannister, I think yeah. was his name. Mm. And so I used to leaf through this thing as a kid and just look at it in wonderment. Um, and, uh, you know, 30 plus years later, I'm just sat here talking to you over the internet in that place. Yeah, um, it's just a few meters away from where I'm sat right now. So I was offered an opportunity out here and I, I, I seized it with both hands. Um, and the company I worked for wanted to keep me in management because I was a business graduate. Um, and I wanted to guide. I wanted to be out in the field. Um, and I said, sorry, but I'm going to say goodbye to you after a year. And that yeah. was when I took the step out uh, by myself in early 2005, late 2004. Um, and so I established my, this business, this company that I've, that I've run to this day in, in March 2005. And grown it from, from a sheet of paper to what it is today. Yeah, which so is incredible. And so that actually brings us perfectly on. Um, and I, I meant to discuss this with you earlier on, um, but as everyone listening will come to realize, I'm not very good at this. So um, let's hear about the camp. This is the most exciting part. You want to know all about your, your operation? Yeah. yeah, we're very proud of it. We love it. Um, we, so we uh, love it as well. So that's, you're not yeah. right. <laughs> no, <laughs> it seems so. It seems so. Yes, we we. So my my wife and I, Charlotte and I, um, run the business. We run the company, and we've built it. And what we've got, in very simple terms, is um, a, a mobile tented camp, which all packs up into the back of a massive seven-ton truck and goes and sets up anywhere we want it to, really. So it's much like a, um, a mobile lodge on wheels, if you like. Um, so it's always an exclusive use camp. Um, and uh, the feedback that we get from people who've been to stay with us is that they always feel like they're coming home. They, mm -hmm. they always feel like they've entered our home in the bush and as such themselves feel like they're at home. So it's yeah. a very personalized, um, comfortable camp. And because um, Charlotte and I like our creature comforts, we've designed our camp to be everything we want it to be. So, yeah. you know, we both like to stretch out like starfish uh, when we go to sleep at night. So our beds are super king doubles. Um, yeah, rather exactly. Than small super ones, luxurious. you know. It's That's it. And as we think of it in the UK. Exactly. So I think a lot of a lot of my um, friends from school and university, when they hear that I run a camping safari company, it, they envisage uh, waking up on a, on the floor of a, a slightly damp tent in a rainy greenfield <laughs> full of sheep in Wales. And um, this is about the complete opposite end of that. Um, yeah. We've got we've got huge big tents they're called meru tents um i think the idea of meru tents comes out of east africa but it's effectively an a-frame um about nine meters long four meters wide and they've got everything you could possibly want in them um like i said the super king double bed or three-quarter singles 
ensuite bathroom yeah with a shower um, but obviously things aren't plumbed in so when you want your shower you ask for it cold or medium or hot um, and it's got a shower rose like shower rose at home and it's got a tap on the wall like a tap on the wall at home and yeah. the water drains through the duck boards into the ground below we've got a normal porcelain flush loo like one has at home um, and we've got these beautiful Moroccan brass sinks um, and so again to, to solve the problems of not being able to provide running water we for those we we, we give a copper jug um, which has got cold water and we provide a two litre Stanley flask with hot water yeah. um, so that when people wake up in the mornings they've got hot water available or cold to splash their face or have a shave or whatever it happens to be and do it with a nice big mirror in a beautiful Moroccan brass sink um, so all the all the creature comforts are there um, and um, uh, and it's very spacious um, and anything you could wish for is provided so when it's winter we've obviously got hot water bottles um, which are put in the tents we've got very comfy dressing gowns there's always extra blankets available um, we've got different types of pillows for different tastes um, so yeah we we put together and made a, a camp that we want to sleep in um, yeah. which sort of um, helps us have our creature comforts and we found that other people quite like that too yeah they really appreciate the kind of effort that's gone into the camp i think and so tell us a bit about um the main locations that you operate in and which are your kind of favorite locations and and the more kind of unusual ones yeah so i would say my favorite is a very 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 tricky one to answer because <laughs> botswana is just incredible it is an amazing place. So it's, it's very tough to pick my favorite of these amazing spots. But if I was pushed, I'd say that I've got two favorites. I can't give you one, Rose, I'm afraid, <laughs> because the two are quite different um, and for different reasons. So in terms of wildlife, I think that my favorite spot has got to be the Morimi Game Reserve in the Okavango Delta. Yeah, very famous, famous area of Botswana. Very famous, and for very good reason. Um, it's um, a very brief geological summary of the Okavango Delta. It's essentially a river which hits the desert and spreads and creates lots of um, incredible and unique ecosystems and habitats across this alluvial fan. Um, because the river doesn't actually end up going anywhere. And so it creates um, beautiful grasslands and floodplains and riverine islands. So the diverse habitat that the Marine Game Reserve has got then supports a real diversity of different species of mammals and birds and reptiles and amphibians. Um, and I can't actually think of a time that I've, been to the Moromi Game Reserve where we didn't see just the most wonderful wildlife um, yeah. sitting in the middle of this beautiful oasis. So the Moromi would be a favourite and in fact uh, we were there about a month ago and had the whole place to ourselves. Um, and then my other favourite I think has got to be probably um, a place called, and wait for it, Kai Kai. 
So that's a little Bushman click there. You can do the clicking. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to try and copy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have much success doing that. So it's um yeah it's 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 uh, it's a very difficult skill which I normally get wrong all the time and when I do it they just <laughs> laugh at me. Um, so um, you've probably it's said a, that completely wrong, but I don't know the difference. Well, uh, you said it right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know the old guide, the old guiding trick, Rose, is if you say it with enough authority, anyone will believe you. So, <laughs> um, yeah. No, so about it. Mm, is um, so that would be spelt X A I X A I, and it's in the Western Kalahari, um, and it's an area uh, where uh, we do anthropological safaris with the Khoisan. Um, more commonly known as the Bushmen, who essentially hold the oldest bloodline um, on the planet. Um, so they are, uh, as hunter-gatherers um, in their society, the, the the oldest culture that we that we have here on the planet. Um, and we take people out um, there and. It's an incredibly immersive experience, um, and it's a, a, a very honest view of what hunter-gatherer society um, certainly was like, and more presently is like in a modern-day context. Um, they're the yeah, most welcoming, they, yeah. incredible people. Yeah, and they are yeah. living traditionally still, aren't they? I mean, they're living, you know, obviously things have changed, but they are still living traditionally as Sam Bushman. Yeah, so it's a very it's a very interesting one actually, and it's something I was I was going to um, come on to um, as well. Um, there is, I think, only a small handful of first peoples anywhere in the world that continue to exist um, as as if they'd never been exposed to. Um, uh, cultures outside of their own. Um, I think there's some undiscovered in still within the Amazon basin, and there's that um, island off of India, I believe, which um, also exists untouched. But the reality with the Khoisan is that their culture has been touched and it has been affected by external influences of the Western world and of the the, the Bantu. Um, people coming down through Africa. Um, but what they have not lost is their deep knowledge and appreciation of the bush. Um, their humor, because they're amongst the funniest people I think I've ever met in my life. In, um, and uh, they're uh, very um, welcoming mannerism towards anybody regardless yeah. of who you are um and it's a concern that often gets raised because people don't want to feel like they're exploiting a culture by witnessing it um and we're also very conscious of making sure that we're not treating them like museum pieces no um, because they are absolutely not what they are is guardians of the wilderness yeah they absolutely. They are walking libraries of knowledge, experience, and appreciation of a landscape um, which uh, is incredible to, to explore and experience and stay in. Um, and it, it's uh, as as an immersive experience which we which we take people to. 
everybody leaves with a um, feeling like they've just had their soul fed with some really, um, really good soul food, if that makes <laughs> yes, any, exactly. any sense. No, I totally <laughs> um, get it. I totally get it. And I think, um, I think what they can offer people, um, which kind of leads you away from the, as you say, the walking museum thing, is that there's a lot of things that they can do, which we can't do. Um, because they haven't lost those skills that we've all lost. And that is so fascinating. And it's like to, to share that with someone, they're teaching you how they track, all of that kind of thing, is that to me is just fascinating. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And when you, when you, when you talk about the, um, uh, the, the knowledge and experience that they've got in the bush, um, as, a, as a professional guide uh, myself, I like to think of myself as a pretty good tracker. I, uh, you know, I've tracked down lions and leopards and I've, I've tracked interesting game and I've used my experience here and there, um, to work out, okay, this is probably a track, which is six to eight hours old. It's a, it's a leopard, it's a female, it's going in this direction. I think we can, we can, um, we can follow it. And sometimes I'm lucky and sometimes I'm not. But when I see these guys tracking, <laughs> I know what you're gonna say. <laughs> I, f I feel functionally extinct um, <laughs> because you just want to give up when you when you when you see the depth of understanding that they that they that they have the depth and breadth of how they will interpret a track. Um, and we're always taught when you when you're learning to track as a youngster, you're always taught don't just look at the track. Look at look at the environment, look at the surrounding environment. They 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 go to a level that you can't believe until you see it uh, and understand it. Um, and we'll see a set of tracks and describe in great detail what has been going on, yeah. when it was happening, for what reasons. And not only that, they start talking about the psychology of the animals, what the animal was thinking and why it was thinking that, and yeah. where it was looking and what it saw. And to the, to the layman, you're just seeing a pug mark in the ground. Yeah. But their deep appreciation for the environment in which they live um, manifests itself through them being able to translate um, such a complex language of the bush into mm -hmm. a language that we can understand. Um, and it's just one of the, the incredible ways that they give us an appreciation of, you know, the, the strength of um, their knowledge. Um, yeah, I think you've um, described it beautifully. And I think that's, you know, quite often when people come to Botswana, they only want to go to the Delta and actually um, to go and see the Sambushman, like you've just said, you know, the way they can translate the wilderness for you. It's just so worth it. And it's such a big part of Botswana. Um, so I always think it's a shame when people just go to the Delta. It's good to combine, combine the two. That's exactly right. And you touch on a very important point there. Um, and I think it's, it's certainly something that's worth considering for anyone who's interested in coming to Botswana is that this country um, is made up of a few really interesting core sort of um, cliff notes, if you like, which are any itinerary should try to take in. Obviously, we know about the Okavango Delta. It's, it's a beautiful, magical area. Um, then you've got this, the Chobi Linyanti area up in the north, which can be a bit busy, um, 
bit busier than other areas we can we can add on things like victoria falls and zim and zam but the areas which often get overlooked but which have so much value are the the kalahari um whether you're talking about the wildlife part the central kalahari game reserve or naipans um, or whether you're talking about the the cultural side like we've just been talking about there with the koisan and then you've got the makarikadi salt pans which are just an incredible expanse of um a vast open salt flat uh, which are former uh, lake bed um here from the great super lake of of makarikadi so i think any itinerary as you well know rose putting together these amazing itineraries for people for a long time now should encapsulate as as much variety of uh, habitat um, and experience uh, as, as people can rather than like you say just focusing on the Okavango Delta only. Yeah no, I totally agree I totally agree um, so if we just quickly move on before we get on to mm. the most exciting bit for me which is your um, wildlife sightings that you've had recently and over the years that stick out yeah. um, I know that Botswana has done really well um, with Covid they 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 implement, implemented the lockdown early. And so what, what's the situation there now with you? What, how do you see yourself coming out of this? Yeah, good question. Um, and just to echo your thoughts there, um, yeah, the government's been very impressive actually um, in terms of being um, uh, quickly uh, and decisively towards the threat of the coronavirus. So. As things stand, and from where I'm speaking to you, up in the northwest of the country, in the Okavango, we've only had one case recorded, and that case has already been deported to a medical facility in the east of the country. So we still remain in the northwest of Botswana without a single recorded current case, yeah. um, which is uh, amazing. It's just, it's, it's fantastic, and it, it does speak volumes to um, how good our government has been uh, has been in terms of you know uh, wanting to protect everybody in in this country the handful of cases that there have been um, have been treated and we've only had one death recorded in this country um, and it was I think a an 80 something year old lady um, and that was only discovered uh, on autopsy so even the cases that have been recorded most have recovered or are being treated so the government has really done a great job um, our borders remain closed so currently anyone coming into the country would would go straight into quarantine although uh, that's that's to be expected um south africa is currently a conduit for us for travelers to get here um and we anticipate um that in time although we don't know when um the borders will reopen for tourists to come here um and we're we, we are working collaboratively um as an industry with the government um to, to ensure that all the right procedures and protocols are in place. I know, for example, that the Botswana Tourism Organization um, is uh, liaising with the World Travel and Tourism Council, um, which is the body which uh, helped Kenya to open their borders up uh, in terms of getting safety measures in place for travel and tourism. So all the right uh, steps are being taken. Yeah. Um, and the, the 
the levels of preparedness are being put in place so that uh, when tourism does open up here, not only is the workforce and the public well educated as to Corona um, and all of the important points of washing hands, social distancing, wearing face masks, hand sanitizer, etc., but that we then still allow and afford people the opportunity to experience this amazing country um, in in all its glory. Um, so yes. That does That's a very good. long way of answering your question <laughs> that the government is doing a good job here. Yes. Um, that sounds really positive. I mean, I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that it'll be October, but we'll just have to see what happens. Um, Fingers crossed. All the, all the steps are being taken. Okay, let's finish off with, um, I know you've been, I know you've got tons of stories and you've been narrowing them down. For everyone to kind of hear your most exciting wildlife encounters but um let's should we have a couple of those and um see how good they are and then we can see if we need more <laughs> oh gosh yeah um well gosh where to start okay um i suppose um you know i'm gonna start with um i'm gonna i'm gonna start telling you actually it's not a wildlife one. well it is a wildlife one but it's not a wildlife one and you'll understand what i mean it's actually a story relating to one of the great shamans that i work with um from 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 the uh, the khoisan tribe there in the western kalahari this and is shaman is like a kind of um he's like a spiritual leader isn't he kind of like a medicine man kind of that's right that's exactly right so uh the um the, their 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 culture um talks to their ancestors through the shamans when the shamans enter a, a state of trance now yes. that trance is uh trance is is generally um accepted to have three different levels the first level most people can achieve either through breathing exercises um, or in some cases the uses of hallucinogenic drugs uh, the second level is what most shamans around the world would be able to enter which is just an altered state of mind and that's often where it's believed that they can communicate um, with contextually whether it's the spirits the ancestors or, or what have you which is then relevant to their people and then there's this third level whereby the shaman leaves the physical form of their body and takes up the physical form of something else which is often then a spirit animal elsewhere yeah now the khoisan are believed to be able to do this and this was something i had heard about um and i was at a trance dance as the, well we call them a trance dance it's a it's a it's a trance uh, ceremony, if you like, whereby the women uh, are sat around the fire clapping and they control the beat and the volume and there's certain songs that they can sing. Uh, one of the strongest songs they've got, they call Zo. And Zo means honey in their language. And this honey song, if they increase the beat and the volume um, and they... Uh, they, they, they um, encourage the shamans to go into trance now there's this one chap who's uh, an incredible guy he's called uh, Karl Kammer um, and he went into trance as he often does with this song um, and the other two shamans also went into trance now after about half an hour uh, Karl Kammer just passed out on the ground um, 
completely solid, wouldn't move, wasn't breathing. Um, and the other two shamans pulled him towards the fire and then started rubbing his belly around the belly button. Now, many shamanic cultures recognize that the belly button um, is where uh, the source of power is and things like your chi or chakra. Um, there are many different cultures which associate that center of power behind the belly button. For them, they call it ngum, and ngum is that same concept. Now, I'm going to fast forward to the next morning when we were leaving. So our guests came across to, to see them, to say goodbye. And we had left them in this state of trance. And we said, uh, we said to the other two shamans who were, who were still with it, what happened last night? And they laughed and pointed at, at Carl and said, well, you should go and ask him really. So we did. And he said, well, I left myself here, as in I left my body here at the fire. And I took up the body of a lion at a place called Kuihaba. And Kuihaba is a place where there's a famous set of caves about 50 kilometers due south of where we were at this point. And I was hungry, so I went and I, went and I killed a cow, and, but then the farmer chased me. And, um, but I found another cow, and I, I was feeding on that cow um, when those two came and got me, and he pointed at the other two shamans. We thought, gosh, that's an interesting story. Anyway, chaps, it's been lovely seeing you. Um, the guests bought a few trinkets off of them, and off we went for the 15-kilometer drive to the airstrip, which is right in the village of Kaikai. And when we got there, we saw there was a bit of a hoo-ha in the center of the village. So we, whilst we're waiting for the aircraft to come and collect our guests, we had a little look around, and we went and spoke to... Um, the chief, who's, who's actually a, a lady chief, a friend of mine, and we said, what's, what's going on? I said, oh, this, this farmer's just come up from Kuihaba because in the middle of the night, a lion came and killed two of his cows. Um, and he shot at him and um, left the first carcass. And then he went and killed another one and he tracked him to it. But now he's lost the tracks. This lion's disappeared. So he's come up here to call the wildlife department down to come, come and track this lion. And at that point, all of us went white as sheets because not 20, 25 minutes beforehand, we just heard Kao re recounting this story to us of how he had gone and killed two cows at this exact location the night before. Wow. So that for me was and it's actually telling you the story, Rose. It's actually put my hairs on end, as it always does when I recount that story. So that that's absolutely extraordinary, unbelievable, isn't it? Um, so that was that was that was when I realised that there is more than I can or ever will understand. Um, and one of the things which keeps me going back over and over and over again. So that's a little bit of a crazy story, which does involve wildlife, but in a slightly different context to what yeah. perhaps you might have expected but amazing hey? I love that I absolutely love that I mean you you must have all been I mean it's so nice for the guests to experience something like that as well yeah uh, I think there was a bit of um, just absolute astonishment uh, because yeah. after spending three days with them they realized just how gentle and kind and friendly and engaging they are as a people yeah. So there was no fear associated with it because no. there's no, there's no um, negativity 
I guess, because we'd all bonded so well. The guests had especially had bonded so well with them. Yeah, um, but it was just, I think, one of the most extraordinary experiences that any one of us had ever had before in our lives. So that was fun. Um, well, fun, incredible, I'll say. Um, how um, amazing yeah i've never never had an experience like that and that's just something yeah i'm not surprised you you wanted to talk about it because it's yeah Mm. sounds sounds quite special Um, certainly the most powerful one Mm. anything anything else up your sleeve that you'd like to get out well you know I th- you know, one of the things that I think Botswana is very famous for is our predator densities. We do yeah. really well with predator densities, actually. And when you, when you look at your five apex predators of lion, hyena, leopard, wild dog, and cheetah, depending on where you are, you can design an itinerary almost to suit. Um, one of my favorite spots where I've actually taken a lot of your clients in the past, Rose, is Kwai. Um, which I think you'll, you, you, you'll know quite well. Yes, Kwai exactly. is, mm, is, well, it's actually where I, where I, where I got married, something I was going to come on to because we've, we've, um, we've also done a few bush weddings out here as well, which is lots of fun. My wife and I got married in Kwai um, and uh, we've, we've organized a couple of other weddings out there. Um, Amazing. So yeah, it's fun. It's always fun to have a, have a wedding in the bush. Um, but, the reason I wanted to tell you about Kwai is it's very good for both wild dogs and leopard. And there's wild one particular... S- number one. Oh, they're amazing, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So wild dogs being um, a, an apex predator that preys mainly on medium-sized antelopes, um, they tend to hunt in, broadly speaking, open woodland um, and often will hunt close to water as well. So on this one particular occasion, uh, we had a lovely family from France um, on safari with us. And we had had some good sightings on that safari. You know, we'd had some nice lions and some nice leopards. And I think we might have even seen cheetah as well at some point. But what we hadn't seen was dogs. And uh, we came across a pack of dogs just at around waking up time, which is typically about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and as, as they were waking up and, um, greeting each other and sniffing and, um, trilling and barking as they do, um, they got on the hunt quite quickly. They, they clearly hadn't eaten that morning and they were looking quite lean and they ran straight towards a band of Mopani woodland. Now, anyone who knows Mopani will know it's not very easy to drive through because Mopani as wood is denser than water and is quite thick. So immediately you think, Oh dear. Right. Well, that's the end of that sighting. Anyway, this particular band of Mopani happened to be quite thin. So I drove three sides of a square to the other side of the Mopani where I thought they were going to come out and we sat and we waited and we waited and about, 10 minutes after sitting down and waiting, um, we heard impalas starting to give off alarm calls and snort. And then the next thing, everything went silent and flying out of this woodland came about 40 or 50 impala running at high speed, absolutely top, top, top speed. And the one thing about impala, you know that they're being chased by dogs is that they'll flick up their back legs 
um, and they run in absolute silence because you're not going to waste energy on snorting because that dog will catch you. So rather put all your energy into running. So these impala come flying and flying out, and in a line they're then pursued by these dogs. Now these dogs were then chasing the impala through open woodland. Um, the wonderful thing about following dogs hunting when you're on safari is that they completely ignore you, um, and you can hunt with them. So we were following the dogs chasing the impala um, knowing that we were not having any effect on their behavior and at about uh, the two o'clock position to our vehicle we watched um, one of the yearling dogs about 50 meters away from us grab uh, a six-month-old impala um, by the neck um, and this was extraordinary behavior because dogs um, tend to eviscerate. So rather than the cats, which will strangle and slowly kill an animal over, let's say, 20 minutes um, by starving it of oxygen, dogs and hyenas will just tear their prey apart. So here was this very strange situation of a young wild dog who would have been about nine months old holding on to a six-month-old impala by the neck, and neither really knew what to do. Um, and we witnessed something which even the wild dog researchers here have never seen before, which was the the dog then just snapped the impala's neck. Um, and I've never heard of it anywhere else um, uh, before or since. So that was that was that was incredible. The thing about the dogs is the thrill of being able to follow them on a hunt. Um, which I don't think you can do with any other predator. And given that we've got about a third of all of Africa's wild dogs in northern Botswana, um, the chance for guests seeing wild dogs here is really, really quite high. Um, so that was, that was another, you know, really exciting moment. That was about three years ago that we had that sighting. Um, oh, sounds yeah, amazing. Wonderful. That's like my absolute dream. I mean, obviously the... The, the, the thrill of following wild dogs, as, as you say, is in, in the hunting because they're so skilled, they're so fast, they've got stamina, they work as a pack, it's exceptional. Obviously, the actual kill is quite horrific. But then it's nice to hear also, like you were saying, you know, it was a six-month-old dog. The, the, the problem with these predators that, that people sometimes don't realise is if they don't eat, there's never going to be, you won't see a six month old puppy because they won't be able to breed and they won't be able to survive. And it's, it is, it, even if it's brutal to watch, it is, it is truly the circle of life. But the, watching them hunting is unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's what I think it's one of the best kind of predator hunting experiences you can have in Africa is to be with wild dog when they're hunting. That's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. And what you, what you say is correct. I think um, it can be, it can be tough viewing. Um, for some people, there's the idea that just because you like the burger, it doesn't mean you want to meet the cow. Um, and I get that because if you haven't been raised in that way or you haven't been exposed to 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 that way of um, uh, that, that that understanding of how a full um, ecosystem works, then having the appreciation for one animal profiting from um, the death of another or at the expense of another um, you won't have experienced that and I think that you know a very good friend of mine coined the phrase Africa is the world's greatest teacher and when you're out there in the wilderness um, and in the bush you you really do get a sense of this and it's one of the things that we try to do is to um, not just point out wildlife to people and talk about gestation periods and explain the biology of animals. We try to get people to see the big 
picture of what is going on here, how every single organism has a role to play. And actually, even the non-organic matter, like the soil, has an effect upon the landscape. Um, so starting at the basics of geology and working it all the way through the various different trophic levels to get a full understanding of the ecosystem that people are experiencing and seeing and sleeping in and smelling and touching and hearing helps to give a full, full picture of what's going on. Um, and so whilst some things can be tough for people to see and experience, it, seeing a kill is not a common thing on safari. No. Um, it's quite rare. So I don't think that that should ever be something that should put people off coming on safari no. um, at all um, because there's just so much to learn. Um, and it's no wonder, you'll know, Rose, because you've got so many repeat clients, you'll know this. People just keep coming back for more and more and more because it keeps, Africa just keeps teaching you. Um, and giving up more of its secrets every time you come and actually ends up teaching you a lot about yourself as well. Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, luckily, luckily for both you and I, it, it does seem to be, so far as it seems to be completely addictive and I've found it. I mean, I, I'm absolutely, I'm a goner. I've got, I can't get back from this now, sadly. But um, I just want to also say on that point is that the perfect thing actually about being in a private camp like yours is that obviously what comes with that is the private guiding. So if you do want to sit for ages discussing exact details of an old, you know, elephant skull, or if you've got an interest in birds, or if you really, really want to sit with a pride of lion all day, you know, you can do basically whatever you want. And that's, that's obviously very appealing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, we, we only offer exclusive use. So any guests that come to us um, will have um, us to themselves and we will have uh, those guests as our sole guests which is wonderful because then um, we can design our our timetables to suit people's interests um, so we we try to make sure we have as good an understanding of what people are interested in so that we know how best to um, show them our Africa here as well and that's where you know the relationship with you comes in Rose because you do such a great job of understanding what your clients interests are which then helps us to make sure that we just give them such a wow factor when they come here and you're right you're absolutely right so Charlotte and I went to the Moremi Game Reserve a month ago um, whilst um, our borders are still closed we had the pleasure of having the whole place to ourselves and um, yeah we will happily sit with the pride of lion for seven hours and we did yeah. we just spent the whole day sitting with them and watching them um and we can do that with our guests um and if people want to sit and bird all day we'll bird all day if they want to um find a beautiful spot to pull out an easel and do a watercolor then let's do it yeah um, i love that, so, I love that. The other benefit of the exclusive use then, of course, um, and I think maybe this speaks a little to your experience of Tanzania, is that you've got less concern about coming into contact with other guests, um, which in uh, the corona world in which we live is going to be a very important consideration. Yeah, um, 100%. So, I think that's why I wanted you to be my first podcast because I thought, you know, the perfect, perfect thing for people coming out of this is, is private camps. And, you know, that you guys have been doing it for so long and you do it so well. So hopefully some people will hear this and 
get get booking up the whole camp for kind of you know to bring your family out here or family and friends when you've we haven't seen each other for a long time especially with lockdown it would be it would it would be truly you'd never have that experience again it'd be once in a lifetime that's absolutely right. Um, it is. Uh, and we, we love doing it. We love playing host um, to uh, people from all over the world. And most commonly, it is families or groups of friends that will come to see us. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I think another consideration um, for anyone that is listening is the value of tourism here on the ground. Um, so many lives and livelihoods are... Um, positively affected and are yeah are depending on travel and tourism um, to 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 get up and running again um, and there's so many there's so much good that comes from people traveling here so for example on peak season time we will probably be employing anywhere from 15 to 20 people yeah, each one of those people on average will have around seven to ten people depending on them so one family coming here on safari is directly going to be helping anywhere up to 200 people through the dollars that they are spending by coming on safari and it's a tangible um traceable effect and the people who are going to be um taking care of your tents um, who will be doing your laundry or cooking your food or serving your meals um, you will get to know them by their first name as they'll get to know you by their by, by your first names um, and they'll tell you about their families and the importance of tourism um, and how important it is uh, as an industry for supporting a great many people yeah. um, so it's a very positive um, uh, circle of um, of uh, feedback um, that tourism gives to, to to the local economy here as well, and that really has suffered due to Corona. So we we can't wait to to welcome people back here, and we'll be ready when they come. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That has been so amazing. Thanks, Rob. You're a legend. And I, uh, no one can see this because it's a podcast, but he's sitting in the most amazing gardens, basically in the Delta at his house. Um, but Rob, I can't thank you enough for that. And we'll catch up. You're, you're in the UK every now and again, aren't you? And, and then we'll catch up next year when the postponed trade fair is on again. Uh, that's time. right. Yes, yes, we will. Um, whenever I can next travel back, I will, uh, I will pop back over um, yeah. and come and um, come and see you. I'm sure we'll go for lunch somewhere in the beautiful Wiltshire or Oxfordshire countryside. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. it will be it will be a pleasure. Perfect. Well, listen, take care, and I'll um, I'll speak to you later. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Rose. Lovely to chat to you. Take Lovely care. To chat to you. Bye. Bye.